Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. Amber McKinney is out this week. I am Alex Lawson, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Haley Knoth. Hello, Haley. Hey, Alex. Happy to be here. I'm happy you're here. Tons of news to get to. I did just want to rattle off a couple of things just came down today because the Supreme Court is in full senioritis mode, or should I say junior year of Alex in high school mode, putting stuff (laughs) off until the very end like they always do. That's a specific specific academic year for you there. We can unpack that another time. You know, that's the year you're supposed to take care of of your business, make sure you get into a good college and all that. Sure, sure. The the results were mixed. Anyway, uh, the the high court got some interesting uh, cases handed down just today, Thursday, as we record, one of which uh, involves really closely watched decision on fair use. It involves portraits done by Andy Warhol of the music icon Prince, and they were based on photographs that had been taken of Prince, and then Andy Warhol rendered them into paintings. And basically, the Supreme Court said today that those portraits do not fall under fair use. So those actually infringe those original photographs of Prince. Uh, the other one came out uh, was a actually a weird case about that had claimed that Twitter, you know, violated the Anti-Terrorism Act by aiding and abetting the Islamic State. And there's all kinds of thorny stuff there on the factual questions. The Supreme Court threw out that lawsuit today. But the reason people were looking at that is because they it provided the court with a chance to really kind of take a bite out of Section 230, which provides huge liability for social media companies for things that users post and things like that. They mostly avoided that question, though. That's sort of notable that they opted not to. That's kind of the rundown on those. I would, of course, uh, as always, refer everyone to our sister show, The Term, which explored those cases uh, and some others in greater details. Check that out, as always. Another busy Thursday for the Supreme Court and a busy day for us here at Pro Se. I also spoke with one of our patent reporters about a really interesting but fairly sensitive matter um, unfolding in the federal circuit right now. They are looking into whether a 95-year-old longtime judge is mentally fit to remain on the bench. Our editor-at-large for intellectual property, Ryan Davis, joined me. It was a great conversation, so stick around for that. As always, we do have some very interesting news stories to cover this week, starting with one of our very favorite topics. Haley, got some big law malpractice, Goss. Let's hear it. Yes, we here at Pro Se love the big law Goss, as you put it. Um <laughs> What's going on here is Proskauer Rose is facing some rough allegations that a former venture capitalist and client of theirs saw his $636 million stake in a fund completely wiped out thanks to sloppy contract language. And this week, a Massachusetts state judge dealt the firm a pretty big blow in that case, rejecting the firm's argument that the hedge fund manager who snapped up that share was actually to blame and that the firm should be able to duck the suit. You know, I mean, you don't have to be a legal industry expert to understand that if a client comes to you and they had $636 million and then a little bit later after you did some work for them, they no longer had $636 million. You know, that's not what you want if you're the firm and it's it's reasonable to expect some legal action. And that uh, that is definitely what happened. And uh, let's talk more about what's going on in this case. 
The former client is a man named Robert Adelman, and he started VenBio alongside three others to invest in the life sciences industry. So then Proskauer was brought in to prepare paperwork to spin off the hedge funds into a separate entity. The plan here was for a San Francisco firm to be the majority owner and the manager of that fund, but then Adelman would still be entitled to a stake in the spinoff fund and a share of future profits. But according to Adelman, that did not go down. Proskauer mistakenly added a provision in the partnership agreement, and I want to note that he claims this was copied and pasted from another, you know, a template or something. Mm-hmm. And this provision gave the San Francisco firm the ability to conduct strategic transactions without obtaining the consent of limited partners like Adelman. It also gave the general partner the ability to decide what exactly qualified as a strategic transaction. That's, of course, as alleged, according to the suit. These are all just allegations. But ultimately, what happened was the general partner took advantage of that language and ousted Adelman from the fund. Another funny thing to mention here is Adelman in his suit pointed to handwritten notes that he said were from a Proskauer partner named Sarah Cherry, who allegedly put brackets around that problematic provision and wrote fuck next to it. And that, he says, means the firm knew that that was a mistake and it wasn't supposed to be in there. Very candid self-reflection from that partner, if, if what's <laughs> described is true. I did see that that image was kind of making the rounds on legal Twitter this week. That's a very hilarious development. Um, what- it is. As a, as a writer, you know, I have written that word next to many of my own, my own draftings over the years. So it's relatable also. That's honestly just sometimes when I like having trouble constructing sentences, I'll just type various obscenities into the Google Doc just to like just get the fingers working. So yeah, uh, yeah. For, for, for any writers out there, <laughs> try that one. Um, so but that's pretty compelling if that note means what Adelman says it means. But what exactly has Proskauer been arguing? The copy and paste job is a pretty compelling argument from the other side. And so, too, is this purported footnote. What has the firm been arguing? Proskauer has been trying to shift the blame to the hedge fund manager here, saying that the manager owed Adelman a fiduciary duty and just, you know, shouldn't have been allowed to take that share. And on top of that, the firm says Adelman is focusing too much on that one part of the contract and ignoring other sections that could have created conditions for what happened. Um, A noteworthy part here is the firm said the language placing no limit on the general partner's authority to engage in these strategic transactions only applied to a really narrow section of the agreement. And there were indeed provisions requiring the general partner to obtain consent from Adelman. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the firm is basically getting sued for drawing up a lousy contract or a lousy business document. And their their response, I, I guess it stands to reason that their response would be, our document is good and cool, and you should be suing the guy who took advantage of you, not us. Yes. Um, but it sounds like from the reason we're talking about it is that the court was not convinced by that argument. No, not at all. The firm had hoped to secure summary judgment here, but Massachusetts Judge Kenneth Salinger rejected that attempt this week. The judge said the contracting parties fully agree that the hedge fund manager did not owe Adelman any fiduciary duty, 
And the other provisions mentioned by Proskauer in their arguments were just essentially irrelevant because the agreement, it expressly gave the hedge fund manager the right to engage in transactions like this, notwithstanding those other provisions. So ultimately, the record thus far, according to the judge, suggests that all of this wouldn't have been able to go down, quote, but for Proskauer's alleged negligence. So this litigation is going to keep trucking and uh, we still have a lot to watch. I, for one, will be very eager to see if any more obscenity-laced post-it notes come out or whatever it was. I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh, (laughs) Thanks, Ailey. Very interesting story. Next, we're actually going to stay in Massachusetts. Didn't even I didn't realize we're all Bay State all the time today. So wow, this, yeah. And this after once again blues. a good theme. I know. Yeah, we got to we'll give them a break uh, after a while. There are fifty states in the union after all. So, but this is a really interesting story because the top federal prosecutor in Massachusetts announced this week that she was stepping down on Friday at the end of this week after a series of ethics probes revealed what government watchdogs called, quote, egregious abuses of power. The U.S. attorney in Massachusetts is named Rachel Rollins, and she was found to have used her position to basically aid political allies and also lied to investigators about leaking confidential documents to the media and a bunch of other stuff, too. Um, And this really caps off what's been a pretty tumultuous tenure for Rollins uh, and leaves the U.S. Attorney's Office in Massachusetts in a pretty precarious position. So there's lots to go over here. You know, as a member of the media, I got to say, <laughs> I'm true. a fan. I'm a fan when uh, when people feel like leaking their confidential docs to us. This is good stuff. But you're probably not supposed to be uh, doing that when you're U.S. Attorney. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, what's your point about our role? I mean, as you know, that's frankly, not our problem. You give me the docs, you deal with the, with the consequences. Very gonna, true. We're going to write Very about true. them if they're, if they're worth writing about. Anyway. Um, but so what do we need to know What besides our own personal uh, yeah. opinions about confidential document leaks here? Yeah. Back to this, <laughs> this matter at hand. What do we need to know about Rollins? So she was something of a historic figure in federal prosecutor world. She is the first black woman to hold the U.S. attorney job in Massachusetts. And the fight to get her confirmed was quite a bitter one. Republicans really took a lot of shots at her. She's very unabashedly progressive. And uh, the, the job she had before taking the U.S. attorney gig was that she was, um, she was the DA, the district attorney for Suffolk County. And in that job, she, had, she basically placed uh, a bunch of offenses on what was deemed a do not prosecute list. And this was like low-level stuff like trespassing, uh, loitering, things like that. It was made in an effort to combat over-incarceration. And of course, Republicans seized on that as being soft on crime. We see that play out a lot, but it got heated enough within the context of Rollins's confirmation that the Senate actually had to hold a floor vote to confirm her. Um, and that hadn't been done in almost 50 years. Usually those people just get by on a voice vote and they don't even bother counting the votes. But it was a 50-50 tie and the vice president, Kamala Harris, had to cast uh, a tie-breaking vote. So wow. it was already pretty heated, just like she was, a, I, I hesitate to say, a controversial figure, but it was definitely politically contested, I would say. And since she took the reins in Massachusetts, her time has been a little bit rocky. We have talked on this show about the government taking some, some serious L's in high-profile cases. We talked about Varsity Blues very recently. 
some public corruption, uh, some high-profile public corruption verdicts were overturned. Now, she didn't, she inherited a lot of those cases, but, you know, when you're in the big chair, you're in the big chair. That's kind of how it goes. The other thing that sort of critics had seized on is that new prosecutions were kind of slow to develop. There were whispers of kind of low morale in the office, so the vultures had kind of been circling, if you were reading between the lines. All of it was pretty far from, from Rosie, even before these ethics concerns popped up. Yeah, let's get more into those, the ethics concerns. What exactly was going on in these investigations? So multiple government agencies were investigating Rollins, and all of it seems to stem from her appearance at a political fundraiser, which appeared to violate rules, the Hatch Act among them, which generally bars federal employees from engaging in certain political activities. Now, if that was the only thing that she was found to have done, probably wouldn't have been that big a deal. You do see a lot of administrations kind of dealing with stuff like that. And usually they, they'll get a reprimand from the GAO or some government watchdog and issue an apology. And that's usually the end of how those stories go. But a pair of reports published this week revealed that there was a lot more trouble uh, for Rollins. The big ticket item here, which we, I've already alluded to, was her interaction with a Boston Herald reporter and specifically her decision to leak an internal document to the paper in an effort to boost the candidacy of this uh, Suffolk County DA hopeful. His name is uh, Ricardo Arroyo, who she supported. So, I mean, she's trying to sort of aid his candidacy and, you know, tamp down his, uh, the incumbents, which is a big no-no if you're a, if you're a federal official, that's pretty cut and dried. Also, in addition to leaking that document to the paper, which you're not allowed to do, According to these reports, Rollins also lied about doing that when she was questioned under oath by federal nice. investigators. Then they got a hold of her text messages with this reporter, and she was like, uh, actually, yes, uh, did do that. Uh, it, was, it was tough. And there's more. There's a laundry list of stuff in here. This one is from the U.S. Office of Special Counsel within the DOJ, laid out a string of ethics violations, including, like I said, the uh, attending a 2022 DNC fundraiser leaking other Justice Department letters that were confidential. She accepted free Boston Celtics tickets for herself and a subordinate. Well, now, can't blame her for that. Well, hey, I mean, she, she, she <laughs> loves ball, clearly. Um, <laughs> ball is life. Yeah, ball is life. She was talking on live radio about a case she had been recused from. She joined this uh, political press conference about the Dobbs ruling, the Supreme Court uh, decision to strike down Roe versus Wade. Uh, then some kind of more garden variety, public corruption type stuff, using her personal cell phone for work and accepting donations to her Suffolk County District Attorney campaign account after she was sworn into federal office. So she's holding federal office and still accepting campaign money for a job she no longer holds or was seeking. So taking all that together, the report from the OSC said that Rollins' conduct was, quote, among the most egregious transgressions of the act that OSC has ever investigated. They're referring to the Hatch Act there, which I uh, mentioned already. Wow, what a, what a declaration from the report there. That's... Yeah, didn't, didn't mince words. This, this <laughs> and the other one, there's like, there's like almost 300 pages worth of, worth of uh, uh, investigation here. Uh, it's exhaustive. Goodness, it is quite a list, it sounds like. Well, so what are we, what's happening now, now that this, these findings have been made? Yeah, I want to be clear that the, the reports here that I'm talking about, now they flagged problematic conduct 
that these watchdogs consider to be in violation of ethics rules, but there's no formal adjudication by a judge or, or any disciplinary board against Rollins. And her attorney, in statements after she made this announcement, indicated that he thought some of the stuff in these reports was either not properly contextualized or overblown and seemed to indicate that she could go to the hilt and fight back against it if she wanted to. But basically, this combined with some of the other things that I had that, that I discussed about her tenure, she basically felt that these investigations and their fallout had become a distraction, and she decided to step down. So as for what happens next, the Massachusetts Attorney's Office is still in a little bit of turmoil, and Rollins' top deputy is a guy named Josh Levy. He is expected to fill in on an interim basis. If you want to know more about sort of, it's a cool local angle, uh, our own Chris Villani, pro se veteran, kind of broke that all down and charted a few of the obstacles that lay ahead for the attorney's office there in Massachusetts. Uh, so check that out if you're interested. But um, a pretty significant development. You know, we, like I say, we see these kinds of things bubble up and rarely does it lead to someone having to step down. But that's exactly what happened here. The Federal Circuit is in the midst of a rather sensitive inquiry, whether a 95-year-old longtime judge is mentally fit to remain on the bench. Judge Pauline Newman has been ordered to submit to medical examinations, turn over medical records, and agree to an interview with the Federal Circuit panel looking into what colleagues have claimed is bizarre and paranoid behavior from the judge. Meanwhile, Judge Newman has accused her colleagues of violating her constitutional rights. Here to walk us through this saga and the myriad of thorny issues it presents is Law360's intellectual property editor-at-large, and I would say federal circuit extraordinaire, Ryan Davis. Welcome back to the show, Ryan. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So as you've reported, this is a pretty rare and uncomfortable scenario, uh, to say the least. And Judge Newman's own allegations are bound to exacerbate tensions on the bench. But before we get into all of that, could you give us a little overview of who Judge Newman is and what she's done that's led to this inquiry? Sure. Um, so Judge Newman is, by a considerable margin, the, the longest serving member of the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, which handles um, a lot of patent cases. And uh, she's been on the bench since 1984. I was appointed by, by Ronald Reagan. Um, and uh, she has kind of a reputation as a prolific dissenter and often disagreeing with the, the, the other judges on the court, usually in support of patent rights. So she has a very high profile in the world of, of patent law. So this came out that uh, we heard rumblings that there was some sort of investigation uh, into her fitness to remain on the bench uh, and got some people to tell us uh, kind of what was going on in the court, came out and confirmed it and said that they were uh, a number of staffers and other judges had raised concerns that at 95, she uh, might be suffering from some sort of cognitive uh, impairment or, or decline. And uh, they wanted to 
conduct this investigation under under a law that can result potentially in a judge effectively being removed from the bench, um, which really struck a nerve uh, with a lot of people in, in patent circles um, the, that this was happening to to such um, esteemed, I guess, member of the of the the court. And, uh, and she has quite a number of defenders who will tell you that there's there's nothing wrong with her. Uh, and she's being unfairly singled out. Um, and uh, it's really kind of escalated since then. It's gotten to be a very heated and, as you said, un- uncomfortable situation for, for this court. Yeah. What are some of the specific things that staffers say they've noticed or, or witnessed? Um, sure, there's kind of two kind of threads to this. Um, one is the the court and the the judges that are conducting the investigation all are arguing that uh, Judge Newman is basically not, I guess, maybe pulling her weight as a judge, and she takes a, a very long time to to issue decisions and uh, issues many fewer of them than the other judges on the the court, which they identify as a problem that could be tied to some sort of uh, issue with her fitness. Um, they, the court has also uh, cited comments from staff members and other judges that uh, Judge Newman has, has seemed confused or slowing down, unable to do tasks um, uh, that she had been able to do before uh, revolving her computer and uh, making claims that they characterizing as bizarre or nonsensical that her that her devices are being hacked or bugged by uh, people that are out to get her. And there's a number of details like that that uh, the, the judges doing this investigation have said have given them cause for concern that that something is not not right here, yeah. So this issue also, very obviously, I should say, uh, presents some really interesting legal questions. In particular, about the 1980 law giving judges the authority to investigate complaints against colleagues. And like you said, ultimately, they could sideline judges that they deem unfit. What does this law state exactly? And what is Judge Newman arguing? Right. Um, So, yeah, the law sets up a, a system where if there's a complaint about a judge's fitness or misconduct, that it's investigated by by other judges on the on the circuit uh, first with a like a three judge committee that makes some sort of recommendations and then to the judicial council which is the body that kind of sets policy for the court um, and that uh, the council can make recommendations that um, if they determine that the judge is unable to serve on the bench they. Uh, are no longer fit to serve, they can, uh, as you said, effectively sideline them. They, they don't remove them from the, the court, but they're not assigned cases. They effectively don't participate oh, interesting. on the court any longer. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that's the final outcome. Like the, the interesting thing is like, this has very rarely been invoked. Most people that I talked to have said it, it doesn't get to this point because people will go to a judge they think might be having some problems and try to get them to step down or to encourage their family to do something about it. So it very rarely even gets to this investigation uh, stage, much less to this kind of public blow up that we've, we've had here. So Judge Newman has filed a lawsuit against all of her colleagues or all the colleagues on the uh, 
on the, the court that serves on this judicial council. And the federal circuit is unique in that the judicial council is just all the judges on the, the court. Um, and they all work in the same building uh, in Washington. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's a very uncomfortable situation. But her lawsuit is, is kind of taking square aim at the law itself, uh, making the argument that, uh, you know, ju- under the Constitution, judges have life tenure. They can only be removed by being impeached by Congress and a law that effectively gives other judges the ability to sideline one of their colleagues is unconstitutional in, in a number of ways. Um, so that suit was just filed a few days ago, uh, very early days in, in testing this, which has really, this law has really not ever been tested that much in court. So there's not much to go on. Yeah, one word that keeps coming up in this, in our conversation here is uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about what this means for the federal circuit as a whole. I know you've talked to some experts about this and we can infer all day long about how awkward it must be at the federal circuit right now, but I'd love to hear what your reporting dug up. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I just said, like it's, it's a very kind of close knit court and this is obvious that this is really going to raise some sort of tensions on there. The one, you know, the other judges on the court are investigating whether one judge is, you know, mentally competent and that judge is suing all the rest of them. Like people are just saying it's really going to make it difficult for the the court to, you know, have collegial relationships Um, going forward. I mean, nobody really knows what's going on behind closed doors, but we get some sense of it in the, the documents that the court has put out, like uh, apparently Judge Newman has been, even without this law, you know, getting to the conclusion of an investigation, being sidelined, that is not being assigned new cases. And she's upset about that, uh, asking the court that she, where she filed the lawsuit to, you know, overturn that ruling. So it's very uh, heated and and personal. And uh, yeah, I just, I mean, people, I talked to people who the clerk there and said, this is unusual. They usually get along very well. They're very friendly. And um, this is um, really going to be a challenge for the, the court to deal with. But both sides are, seem very dug in. Uh, and uh, it's hard to see either side giving ground here. Um, so I guess it's going to play out in the courts. So this week, the committee investigating Judge Newman ordered her to submit all those medical examinations and all of that. How did the committee reach this finding? I mean, it's based on the points I was talking about before, where the staffers are raising concerns about her behavior and um, the work that she's she's doing. So the, the committee has ordered her to submit to examinations uh, by a doctor that they've chosen before, and she's basically not responded. Um, so I don't know if she's going to respond this time. They've ordered her to, yeah. uh, to give an answer by next week, but this is a major part of her lawsuit as well. That the idea that she's being, you know, forced to consent to medical, medical examinations by people that are inv- chosen by people that are investigating her, um, violates her constitutional rights. The committee says like that's, uh, under the law, they can, they have the authority to do that and they need to have some sort of scientific evaluation before they can make a conclusion. Um, so I couldn't tell you <laughs> what, <laughs> what could happen next there, but 
something's got to get it there. Either she's going to submit to an examination or they're going to expand their investigation into whether her refusing to do this is, you know, further grounds for, uh, for her to be removed from the bench, I guess. Right. Speaking of, you know, what to look for next here, I'm curious, um, you've mentioned this is obviously a really unique and untested issue. So I'm sure, you know, anything here is speculation as to what will come next, but I'm curious what you in particular are are expecting or watching for? Sure. I mean, one aspect of this whole situation that's gotten a lot of attention is that the law that we've been talking about has a mechanism where the investigation can be transferred to another circuit court um, at the request of the the chief judge of the the court in question, who uh, here, Chief Judge Kimberly Moore has refused uh and the special committee doing the investigation have refused to to ask uh to have this transferred and you know i've heard a lot from a lot of people who said that seems like it would be a good idea and they don't know why the court is hanging on to this given how tense and interpersonal it could be so that's another aspect of the situation of the lawsuit maybe that could it end up somewhere else it doesn't seem like the, the court is is willing to do that, but I don't think that issue is going to go away. Um, so beyond that, I mean, I guess we'll see how, I mean, it's going on two tracks. There's the investigation itself at the federal circuit and the, the lawsuit in district court, which I guess you can imagine Judge Newman trying to file some sort of motion to, to halt the investigation or get it transferred or I don't really know. I mean, the overarching theme of the, the the suit that the entire law is unconstitutional. I'm not sure if it'll ever reach that point. Um, it seems like people want to get this re- resolved more, more quickly than it would take to reach a determination on that. But um, right. potentially that's, that's, it could go all the way to, to that. And, and you can imagine that leading to appeals and all that uh, entails. So yeah, I mean, Unless they all make peace and reach some sort of amicable resolution soon, looks like this is going to continue for a while. So it's a lot to keep an eye out for. Yeah, really, really interesting stuff. And I really encourage everyone listening to check out uh, Ryan's stories on this. Thank you so much again, Ryan, for being with us on Pro Se today. Thanks for having me. We like to end the show with something offbeat. And Alex, you have a great one for us today. In addition to being heavy on Massachusetts, we've been really heavy on defamation lately. Um, And that's what we're dealing with again here today. This is a pretty bitter defamation fight between the actor, comedian, podcast host, Michael Rappaport, and the subversive sports and culture blog website, Barstool Sports. So... What you need to know here is that Michael Rappaport used to host a podcast on Barstool and they had some kind of falling out and then he was fired. And in the aftermath of him being fired, many people at Barstool 
started to just basically make fun of the guy. Most notably, they seized upon this picture of him from some kind of, I don't know if it was a movie premiere or some kind of public event where he had um, what appears to be an active like sore or lesion near his mouth. <laughs> and they, they basically started saying that he has herpes. They made t-shirts about it. They made diss tracks about it. We'll get back to that in one diss second. Tracks. Yeah, well, that's going to be important in just a second. So basically, Rappaport sues Barstool for defamation. They say that there are lengthy documents that I can never unread about how actually I don't have herpes and that's defamatory <laughs> to me. And it's, it's as ridiculous as it sounds, but he lost in New York federal court. And now they're up at the second circuit and he's trying to get that overturned. One thing I wanted to point out here, basically the, the reason Barstool prevailed is because they enjoy, like a lot of media entities and even non-media entities, people who work in comedy or hyperbolic statements or parody or whatever, enjoy a great deal of protection under defamation law. And the judge basically found that all of that uh, very obviously um, applies to Barstool. But now, right. up at the Second Circuit, Rappaport's lawyers are, are seizing on this diss track. I mentioned that before, and some Barstool personalities basically put out a what is a rap track where they make fun of him for having herpes and <laughs> doing other things. And his lawyers seize on that in their efforts to overturn their loss here with a very interesting footnote that I'll just read. The fact that Barstool labels this as a diss track does not mean it is inherently hyperbolic and cannot contain assertions of fact. One need not look any further than arguably the most famous diss track of all time, the final rap battle in Eminem's Eight Mile, where it is not the hyperbolic words that eviscerate his opponent, but rather the attacks based upon assertions of fact. And uh, everyone, of course, knows what I'm referring to here. This is where he's facing off with none other than Anthony Mackie, Captain America himself now, and uh, kind of takes him to task wow. for his uh, privileged background. But I know something about you. You went to Cranbrook. That's a private school. What's the matter, dog? You embarrassed? This guy's a gangster. His real name's Clarence. And Clarence lives at home with both parents. And Clarence's parents have a real good marriage. This guy don't want to battle. He's shook because ain't no such things as halfway crooks. Couple things here, some of which I think are obvious. And I don't know what's going to happen. The basic read on this case is that it's, Barstool is pretty ironclad in its protections here under defamation law. I could be wrong. Crazy things happen all the time. But citing to a fictional film about assertions of fact is pretty interesting, I would say. It's a, it's no, it's a novel approach, I would say. Yeah. And if nothing else, this case is a vessel for... Eight Mile references, yeah. and you can't hate that. No. You love it. Well, I wanted to, yeah, this is the, okay, so that's what's going on in the Barstool case. The appeal's pending at the Second Circuit. We'll let you know. But I did want to make some space. Listen, I am a white kid from a Midwest suburb who attended high school in the early 2000s, which means I was built in a lab to worship at the altar of Eminem and eight miles specifically. So this was, <sighs> Alex, this, this, I was too. <laughs> this, is a, this is a big, this was a big movie for young Alex and his, and his cohorts, especially this scene the, the, all the rap battles are so sick. 
They really are. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was I don't know. a I don't huge have anything fan. To say here, I uh, speak on it. I don't know because um, your description it perfectly applied to me as well. A white yeah. kid in the suburbs in high school in the early two thousands. Eight Mile was it was everything, and yeah. uh, my you know people who knew me around that time. I'm sad to say that maybe my Eminem fandom was even a defining quality for me at the time. It, it was on, I mean, now I'm like, oh, oh no. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we don't, I'm, I'm not going to do the whole has an aged well <laughs> thing. Also, his new stuff is not great, but that's okay. Yeah, um, I think just, uh, I, yeah, we don't need to get into that. I'm just embarrassed that it was such a big part of my like personality at the time. Well, I mean, you may be wondering, maybe the listeners are wondering, you know, if I was such a big Eminem fan, did I ever bleach my hair? Did you? Know, you? I will take the fifth on that one. Uh, oh, I, I will not oh, incriminate wow. myself. No, no. Uh, no, I never <laughs> did. I never did. Um, but, you know, uh, it was... Good for you. It, 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 for, for as silly as this, as this dispute is between Rappaport and Barstool, I don't need an excuse to rewatch 8 Mile, but it's nice to have one. And, uh, oh, and for yeah. that, I do thank these guys for uh, getting into this stupid dispute so we can talk about it on the podcast and uh, revisit our fond eight mile memories. We must thank them for their service. Also, R.I.P. Brittany Murphy. She's awesome in Eight Mile, and I'm very sad that she's no longer with us. So, not to be a downer, but yeah. That'll wrap things up for us this week. Thank you so much for joining me, Haley. It was a joy as always. Thank you, Alex. We have so many people to thank for this week's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Ryan Davis, and contributing reporters, Jonathan Capriel, Chris Villani, and Brian Dowling. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. We really appreciate it, and it helps other people find the show. So thank you again for that great service you do. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you again next week.